Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Me Athlete Radio. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 143 of No Athlete Radio. I'm Matt Frazier, joined for just a few minutes by Doug Hay, and pretty soon we're going to ditch Doug and do something special today. Oh, man. Does that hurt your feelings, Doug? It does. You always do that. I know, I do. We haven't been bringing the did you, the Doug's did you know recently, so I think people are losing interest in, in what you have to say. And me in general? <laughs> yeah, just because you're not doing those. <laughs> okay. You're well, not winning. You, you're finishing top whatever 20 but not winning your 50k oh, man you, you gotta you gotta start bringing it Doug. you're right you're right well i'm bringing it back next week <laughs> okay good you heard next it here week, first next week we will be back to normal episodes this week we're doing something a little bit different uh something that you doug and other podcast aficionados tell me is okay and that <laughs> is to republish or re re i don't know rebroadcast um a podcast someone else has done interviewing me, which is which is cool. It's, it's I think it's a kind of a fun thing to do, and the particular one we're doing, uh, as you may have already noticed by the length of this episode, if you can see that, uh, is a long one. It is close to two hours in length, and it's with my friend Nicole Antoinette, who is now um, her her podcast is called Real Talk Radio, and her all of her stuff, her blog, and all the, everything else she does is at nicoleantoinette.com. Uh, it's a cool interview. She, I, I really liked it. The reason that I think this one is a good one to to rebroadcast uh, is because it wasn't a typical interview. I mean, I do a good number of these podcast interviews, and a lot of the the stuff. I mean, they're interesting, but a lot of it is about nutrition and and running tips and things like that. This conversation with Nicole kind of gets much more personal. Um, we we talk a lot about like the idea of goals and failing on the way to goals, and sometimes failing and giving up on goals. Um, cause Nicole has some, spe- some experience with that. I don't want to say necessarily failing, but, um, kind of abandoning or putting on hold a huge goal, which was running across the country. Uh, that was, she was kind of, it was super ambitious. She started doing that, uh, really only a few months, I think after she ran her first marathon, she kind of set this thing and started, you know, got a coach, got into ultra running and was going to run across the country. And then I think ran into just a bunch of, of, uh, just started questioning why she was doing it and a bunch of other things. So she just ran a lot into of, some problems. Yes, yeah, she ran into some problems. Doug. <laughs> we actually had her on the on the podcast to talk about that. Yes, we had her talk. Did you, she talk? Was that after she had? No, that was when she was still planning to do it. Okay, because I think we had her also as an acad. Or I know we had her as an academy interview, and I can't. I I feel like we've had her share her the story of deciding not to do it. I'm I'm not positive Doug, yeah. that wasn't on the podcast, but I'm, who knows. Yeah, I think that was the academy, but I might be wrong about that. Yeah, well, we should we should get that stuff straight, shouldn't we? <laughs> Next uh, time. Anyway, it's a, it's a good conversation. I really like it, and I'm very happy to share it. Um, so, what else is there to say? I don't know. Uh, Nicole is cool. She's a good friend. We met for dinner in Los Angeles during my book tour, and and got to hang out in person. That was really nice, and we have a lot in common just in in our shared interest in the the type of topics that that I've been talking about. So. Um, I, I think you will enjoy it. You certainly don't need to listen to the whole thing. If you're used to listening to our 40-minute to an hour episodes, you can just listen to that much and then and then hopefully go check out Nicole's uh, show, Real Talk Radio, where she has interviewed a bunch of other people who are friends of No Meat Athlete. Uh, I don't, the names aren't all coming to mind right now, but Steve Cam, Joel Runyon, Jeff Sanders, these are all people who you've heard um, you know, on our podcast or, or other things related to No Meat Athlete. So 
Uh, very cool thing. And plus, you know, many, many other. Oh, Jason Fitzgerald, who I've forgotten. Jenny Blake, who's not been on our podcast, but someone who I have been in touch with. Uh, so lots and lots of good people. Anyway, Doug, do you have anything else to add before we go to the interview? I think I'm all set. Okay. Thanks what for I having have... me on, Matt, for this five minutes. <laughs> You're welcome, Doug. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> um, I have something to add, and that is an ad. Oh, for uh, the live events that I'm going to be doing today. And in fact, in this episode with Nicole, I mentioned fairly early on, we start talking about speaking and I start talking about how it's actually not my favorite thing to do. And I've kind of recognized that like, even after this whole book tour where I spoke 40 times in 50 days and really got comfortable with it, uh, I still just sort of came to the realization that like, I'm, I'm not afraid of public speaking. I've gotten over any of that. Um, but just kind of got to the realization that it's not my favorite thing to do. And I tend to prefer to just kind of stay home and do it. So anyway, I'm, I'm pretty choosy about the stuff that I go to, uh, not, not because I have thousands of choices and I just can, can man, can afford to be that choosy. Uh, it's just that I, I just kind of like to stick to the ones that seem really, really fun. And that's what I have to tell you about today. There's the, of course, you've heard of Sid Garza Hillman lots of times. He's at the Stanford Inn. Uh, we're doing some vegan running retreats there. The one that is coming up next is on June 20th through June 24th. It's a four-night stay at the Stanford Inn All-Vegan Eco Resort in Mendocino, California, where you, Doug, just spent some time with your, uh, not your fiancé, but your wife, Katie. <laughs> yep, I sure did. Yep, uh, and very nice place there, all kinds of good stuff, the, the famous Ravens restaurant. Um, so there's running, there's dinners, there's yoga classes, there's talks, all kinds of really good stuff. If you want to check out that uh, for June 20th, it is at nomadathlete.com slash retreat. And the other thing to tell you about is the Remedy Food Project live in Toronto just before the Stanford Inn thing. That's June 17th to 19th. I'll be speaking there with a bunch, really like the best speaking lineup I've ever been a part of. Dr. Colin Campbell, Dr. Garth Davis, Chef AJ, Dr. Tom Campbell, Richard Oppenlander, Caldwell Esselstyn Jr., Robert Osfeld, Michael Greger, Jane Esselstyn, Lindsay Nixon, me, Doug McNish, Doug Lyle, Brenda Davis, John Pierre, and Jason Robel. Lots and lots of big names there. Um, and I'm looking forward to going to Toronto. People say that is just a really cool and also vegan-friendly city. So I think it's going to be a really, really fun time. There's lots of food. It's a full weekend-long event. And if you decide to go to that, you can use my code, no Meat Athlete to get yourself 20% off the price of a weekend pass. Also, email me, matt at nomeatathlete.com. If you do sign up to go to that, and I will keep you in the loop about any sort of meetup I'll be doing with the Toronto Nomad Athlete Group and send you some cool stuff, including my ebook Wake Up and the recordings of last year's talks uh, at this Remedy Food Project event. Oh, so that's cool. Very, yeah, very good package of stuff there. I think it's a great deal. Um, so, anyway, check all that out. It's at remedyfood.org. And don't forget to use the code Nomad Athlete. All right, that's it. That's my ad. Sounds great. Let's get okay. to the interview. Enough of that let's, stuff. Let's do it. Okay. Enjoy the interview, everyone. We'll, uh, we'll be back with a normal episode next week. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nicole. It's good to be here and catch up. I know. I was trying to remember the last time that we spoke or when that was that we had dinner in L.A., and I feel like it was a long time ago now. Yeah. Dinner in L.A. would have been... Uh... Would have been over two years ago now, because that would have been that was on my book tour, and that was the fall of 2013. Yeah, and that was uh, before I moved to Oregon. So 
a right. lot has changed. So tell me everything that's happened in the last two years now. <laughs> um, actually, so I want to hear about, you were on a, a cruise last week, right? I was on a cruise, yes. Tell me about uh, it. Well, I got sick on it. So that, that I will start there. Um, which it, It's a vegan cruise, Holistic Holiday at Sea, it's called. This, this is the second year I've been on it. Um, I was a speaker this year, which was really cool. And I got to speak on a panel as well uh, with a bunch of other vegan athlete types. And uh, it, it's really a cool cruise. We Last year we went, and that's when uh, my wife and I were inspired to start eating oil-free at home. Because we had been vegan, of course, for years before that. Uh, and, and we like all the vegan doctors always talk about oil-free, oil-free, like as if it is just part of veganism almost. Uh, and it's not. I don't want anybody to think that, that you need to do that in order to be vegan. But, uh, you know, like it's just, just an essential component of health for, for a lot of these famous vegan doctors. And we were like, always thought we couldn't do it. We just said it's just going to ruin our cooking and, I don't know, just not be worth it. But we went on this cruise last year, and most of their menu is oil-free. You can you can actually choose oil-free or not, which is amazing that they have a cruise that would offer <laughs> such a uh, level of, of, you know, different – cater to different uh, dietary needs. And we did it, and we and it was fine. And, like, we didn't notice any difference in the food. So we were like, well, we're going to start being oil-free at home. So we did that. Uh, my wife actually – met uh, a woman named Chef AJ there who's like a vegan coach and uh, I guess a weight loss sort of weight loss coach if I what she is. Uh, but my wife went on her program, joined her thing, lost like 20 pounds and got really interested in fitness again. So like this, this the whole thing, the whole last year has changed uh, my wife's and then kind of as a result, my life as it pertains to fitness and health and everything. So it's just, the cruise has been wonderful to us. Uh, so we were really excited to come back this year. And uh, it was awesome again, except that uh, I guess got sick and spent like four of the days in the room watching ESPN Caribbean. Oh man! So I've never been on a cruise, and the two reasons—one because I get like horribly seasick—and I've talked to enough people that said, "Yeah, you'll probably feel it enough that it makes me nervous." But the uh-huh. other reason was always the food. Like one of the things you hear about for cruises is like, "Oh my god, these amazing buffets and all this food." I'm like, "Right," but most of that food is stuff that I'm not going to eat. Being vegan, so this like really <laughs> piques my interest. When you said you were going on a vegan cruise, I was like, uh, "We got to talk about that." That sounds awesome. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I believe there's a West Coast one as well. Uh, I don't know where it leaves from or even what the name of it is, but I'm sure you can find it by, by Googling. Yeah, um, I will definitely have to look that up because, I mean, not that I'm like <laughs> like desperate to set out on a cruise, but it sounds, I don't know, it sounds fun. I'm interested, uh, my husband and I never did a honeymoon when we got married. Um, so we've been thinking about like doing a couple of small trips and, you know, one of the things that, I mean, I I love eating foods, like basically my favorite thing. And, you know, I wanted that to be part of where we were going to go and to have it be something that, you know, we could eat super delicious vegan food. And I remember that, I think you were the one who had told me about, um, the Stanford eco resort in Mendocino. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's where we're going to go. Oh, nice. That's a, that's a great choice. I think you would a little great time there. I mean, their menu of their all-vegan restaurant, like, it just looks insane. I'm like, yeah, I want to eat every one of those things. <laughs> right. They just had a cookbook come out, actually. Did you know that? I did not know that. Oh, great. <laughs> one more cookbook I have to add to my shelf. But yeah, no, that, that's uh, awesome. So have you been there? I have. Uh, actually, just a few days before I met you in L.A., I had spent the night uh, there because Sid Garza Hillman is their, their wellness programs director. Uh, and he himself is an author, uh, vegan podcaster. Um, so I hung out with him there and then we did, he came down to San Francisco with me and did a few like kind of joint events with me. Um, so yeah, it, it, that was an awesome place. I really enjoyed it there. It's fun. They're, they're good people there. 
Yeah, and the photos look beautiful, and it's just there's something that sounds really nice to me. Obviously, there's lots of different types of travel, and of course, I've, I have found it easier than I thought to eat vegan in lots of different places and lots of different situations, but there's it tends not to be the kind of gourmet food route usually, um, and it's nice to think yeah, about going one, to a place. Right. That like has these incredible meals. Like I literally don't have to think about a single thing like their insane breakfast menu, like all the things I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want to eat all of it. So that's going to be fun. I'm excited. Do you have any other travel this year? I do. I have a few little things. Uh, I am going to be actually I'm going on Friday down to Florida just to do a little speaking at an event in Sarasota. Um, and then I'm going to go to Canada to speak at in Toronto at an event called The Remedy, uh, which should be really fun. That has a really, really great lineup of vegan speakers. Probably the best lineup I've ever been a part of. Uh, I'm like the lamest guy on there. Uh, but it, that, that'll be fun. I haven't been to Canada in a really long time. And then actually I'm going to be coming out to Stanford Inn, believe it or not, uh, in June for like a vegan running retreat that I'm doing in conjunction with Sid Garza Hill and the, the wellness guy there. Oh, that's a see funny. That's like the, the not probably not the time of year that we're going, but how <laughs> funny that you're headed there also. So yeah. it sounds like you're doing more speaking these days. I mean, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm sort of like <laughs> really selective about what I do, even though I shouldn't be. Like, I'm not. It's not. I'm. It's not like I'm so selective because uh, I just have. I have offers coming that it, so many more offers that I can handle. Uh, it's. I just don't really like leaving home. Like, I just. I don't know. I have two kids now. And we just have such a good time at home. It's just so comfortable. Uh, I, I guess maybe I'm kind of spoiled by being able to work from home and not not having to be away from them all day. So, like, I guess the nurse just sort of sets in. I just don't want to really go anywhere. Um, I mean, I love to travel. Or the family loves to travel, too. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah, speaking is just – it has never really been my uh, my thing. Like, I'm so much more comfortable as kind of an introverted person uh, – you know, behind a blog post where I can like edit everything down to exactly the way I want it to sound, uh, or even like a podcast recording where I can edit that too. Uh, I don't know. Like, I don't feel like I'm a bad speaker. It's just never really been, um, my, my favorite way of, of communicating. So I don't know. I'm, I'm fair. I just end up saying no to a lot of like random veg fests, but, uh, I, I like to pick these fun things like the, like the Stanford Inn thing or like this cool thing in Toronto or a vegan cruise, you know, I like to do those things. Uh, but that, that's, probably the extent of the speaking I'll be, I'll be doing. But I mean, I actually think that's, that's smart. And that's something that I admire, you know, when I hear someone say, okay, this is my skill set, or this is, or isn't my favorite way, you know, to favorite medium to do the work and to be selective about that. Like, I think if you said yes to everything, you would be burned out and unhappy. Yeah. And the book tour kind of taught me that, like I, prior to that, I had this thought that, that public speaking was just one of those things where if you do it enough, uh, you become comfortable with it. And, and I did become com- comfortable with it in the sense that like once I had given this, because I kind of, I gave a talk on my book tour and it was pretty much the same talk every event except for the fact that I could adjust it. Like if somebody laughed at a joke that I wasn't expecting to, I would make sure to keep that joke in there the next night. And and likewise, and I kind of realized that this is what stand-up comics do and, and anyone else who speaks it like on a circuit uh, and just keeps giving the same talk that they are adjusting that talk based on the feedback that they're getting on it and uh, and it's a way for things to quickly become very polished, and for someone to get to the point where you just wonder how 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 they could be so good at speaking. Uh, I experienced that, and I experienced a, a really drastic improvement in in my ability to deliver this particular talk, and a drastic, really a complete um, 
disappearance of nervousness. Like for the first five days, I, I certainly had that nervousness. But after that, it, it really just disappeared in a way that I hadn't really experienced before uh, when it came to public speaking. But what was interesting for me was that even after doing that, and that, that was 40 events in like 50 or 55 days, even after that happened, um, I got a couple emails you know, asking me to come speak at a VegFest. And my, my first gut reaction was, I really don't want to go do that. <laughs> so I, I think after that, I, I just sort of kind of gave up on this idea that public speaking is just something where if you just do it enough, you will come to enjoy it and like it. And I just realized that it's just not my favorite thing. Like, I'm not afraid of it anymore. I know for a fact because I did it that much. Uh, but it's just not my favorite thing. So it, I'm, I'm glad someone appreciates that. I do. Well, I mean, we're like nine minutes in and I'm super digging. You're already really real, real talk. So awesome. <laughs> it's good. good. Well, I mean, I've been thinking it's so funny what you said about just like really loving being at home. And I, I'm the same way. I think I love doing in-person things, like whether that's speaking or workshops or getting together with groups of people or leading events or like there's something about that energy that I really, really love. And it's like the fantasy in my head is I want that to exist, like basically at home, <laughs> like where, like, I don't like traveling and I don't right, like all right. the things that are around that. Like I want to just be able to like, you know, magic snap my fingers, you know, Harry Potter, disapparate, you know, be, <laughs> arrive in the place, be able to do the thing for two hours or two days or whatever it is, and then be at home with my cats. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure you will figure out a way to do that. Because I know for a fact that people, there are people who do exactly that host host events, you know, for no in their hometown for no other reason than the fact that they live there. And, uh, and people have to come to them. And Bend is real gorgeous, so I don't know that it's that hard of a sell. Yeah, people are coming here. Right, right. So, uh, other than the speaking and you know uh, all the things that you have going on, what's your favorite, or maybe not favorite? What's the project that you're most excited to be working on right now? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I'm kind of at a point right now where I am a little bit between stuff. Um, so I haven't really announced this anywhere officially yet, I don't think. Uh, but I have a new book that's coming out in, in spring 2017. It will be like a cookbook, um, still under the No Meat Athlete brand. So I'm working on that. That's not really, it, it's still so far off for me that like it's not it's not there where I'm just like thinking about it all the time and, and working really hard on it yet. Uh, so that's coming up and it's, it's exciting for me to think about it. I have a lot of ideas for how, what things I want to do differently between the last book and this one. Um, the thing I think that that is most fun for me still, um, as far as No Meat Athlete goes, is uh, these No Meat Athlete running groups that uh, I, along with some help, started around the country and even around the world. There are uh, two of them in Australia, one of which happens to be one of our, our most active and best groups. Uh, and the way that all started, I don't honestly know if you and I have, have talked about this, but I'm sure you know who Seth Godin is, and I'm sure you're probably a fan of his, just like I am. Uh, in fact, I'm like a mega fan of his. Um, but I, I had the chance to go to his office for a week in 2014. He just kind of like put out this announcement on his blog and said he was doing this totally free event, uh, for 15 people, but you had to apply and make a video and do all this stuff. And, and I did what he said. And I just had this feeling that for some reason I was going to win this thing. And, uh, sure enough, I got chosen, got picked, which is kind of ironic because his, his whole thing is don't wait around to be picked, but pick yourself. Um, so I got to do that and my thing that what he did, he kind of worked with everybody there, all the 15 of us on little pet projects and things we really wanted to to see happen. And the one that I didn't know this was going to be it going into the event, but as we just, you know, started having conversations, it, it 
came out that I didn't really feel like No Meat Athlete was a tribe because he talks about tribes. In fact, he has one of his best books is called Tribes. Um, but one of his criteria for something being a tribe is that the tribe is connected to each other. The members of the tribe can communicate and do communicate to each other, not just through you. So I had always said like, well, I, I have a blog and I, they leave comments back to me on there. Uh, and there's some little bit of interaction that happens between readers of the blog. We have a Facebook audience like everybody else and they can talk to each other, but really nothing happens if I wasn't in the room, whether, you know, the digital room or the real room. Um, so I, I just kind of started feeling like this wasn't a tribe and I wanted it to be something that truly did happen in the best possible way when I wasn't there. Uh, it turned out that the answer for that was, was to start all these running groups where, where these groups get together, go for a run. Some of them do things besides running, but mostly it's get together, go for a run and then go do something vegan, you know, go to a local vegan restaurant, have a potluck in their house. Uh, maybe once a month, go do some sort of cool outreach type project. Uh, and those things just happened. Seth helped me kind of engineer how they would happen and help me, help me figure out what it would take to really get, get things lined up and then just say, go to everybody. Uh, so that, that was an amazing project. I guess the association with him still is one of the reasons that I love it so much. Uh, but it's, it's really, really wonderful to see people, some of these groups, you know, they get 40 or 50 people to show up to their stuff. And some of them, like the people in Oklahoma City, which happens to be one of our surprising good ones in this this in the middle of beef country, is this group of vegan runners. And I went there and I've gone and visited several of these groups now. Uh, when I went and visited them, some of them told me that, first of all, they didn't know any other vegans, didn't know any in real life before this group had started. And second of all, that the people in this group had become like literally their very best friends. So... For me to know that that's happening in all these different places uh, and that I had something to do with it, but that it doesn't require me to to be there and that it can happen without me being in all these places at once. Uh, it's just such a fulfilling thing that that to me has, has become really the most rewarding part of, of No Meat Athlete. And I feel like there's something really powerful about having the opportunity to interact in person with people who share you know, your values or your lifestyle choices. I mean, I don't know what your experience was of transitioning to being vegan. That's something that I want to get into in a minute. But for me, there was definitely an isolating piece of it. I was also the only person that I knew in, you know, real life that was making these choices. And one of the things that it impacted the most, especially at the beginning was social stuff for me. And so I can imagine for people who feel the same way, having this group of people to get together with and just that kind of reassurance oh, not only am I not alone, but look at all these other people that, you know, I can be friends with. Yeah, it, it really is particularly isolating. Um, it's, it's you know, as, as much as the plant-based movement is growing, it's still very easy to not know anybody else who, who eats this way. Uh, the internet has, has made it a lot easier to find those people, but still, and with something as, as like, you know, central and core to us as, as the food that we are eating and the people we're eating that food with, uh, it's it's very easy to not have a lot of confidence in in this new thing when you're the only one who has decided to eat this certain way. You can see how people like after a week of that or even less say, "Wait a minute, what am I doing? This is crazy. I I can't be doing this because someone has has or or lots of people have told them that they're crazy and that they're not going to get enough protein and they're going to die and all this." And, and I think eat that way for enough and hear that enough times and if if you're the only one around who's doing that, you know, I think you're going to start to listen to that stuff pretty soon and then and then give up. 
Well, and especially for someone like me, and I think I'm definitely not alone in this, food is such a communal experience and it's such kind of like a sharing of love and just the act of like, let's all come to the same table and eat food together or, you know, whatever. That was definitely something that was important to me growing up and forever. And if that element of it is taken away and it becomes this very isolated thing, that can also be hard too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think... I think that's a huge part, right? So now suddenly you feel like you're unloved because you have chosen to eat your, eat, eat this this diet that no one else is eating. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very clear how how hard it would be to make that work. Um, so yeah, so I mean, hopefully these groups are help are making it easier for people to become vegan. I don't know, but uh, at the very least, they've they've brought together people who already are vegan, and uh, that's that's a really nice thing. Definitely. I mean, and then I would assume ripple effects too, that you can't even expect that maybe those people who felt alone or isolated now feel more confident and empowered. That makes them more likely to stick with it, more likely to talk about it. You know, you never know how one thing winds up impacting and rippling outwards. Right, right. It absolutely does. So for you, I want to kind of time travel back. What came first for you, running or being vegan? Uh, definitely running by, by probably 10 or more years. Okay. Um, so will you I, tell the story of how you got into running? Sure. Yeah. So I absolutely hated running as a kid and I, it was like, it was the, the thing I did not like at all. Um, I have, I got, I earned two varsity letters, one sophomore year, one junior year, and they were for golf, which, uh, which had as little running as, as I could imagine a sport having. Uh, so that's, that's partly why I think why I picked it. Um, I didn't really see any purpose of running other than to to play a certain sport and then running was just the worst part of doing that sport until I got to college when I started lifting weights with some friends just kind of got into fitness in general for the first time started lifting weights uh we put on a bunch of weight we bulked up which was exactly what we were wanting to do so I I was accomplishing the goal and getting rewarded you know for this interest in fitness uh but we packed on some fat too which which is kind of what happens uh, as a consequence of gaining muscle, that very few people can can gain a lot of muscle without adding fat on, and this is why bodybuilders will will first spend you know months bulking up and adding muscle, and then before a competition, some amount of weeks before that, they will then work on cutting that fat, and so it's it's more efficient to try to to you know gain muscle then lose fat than to try to lose fat at the same time you're gaining muscle. So anyway, that's probably unnecessary to the story, but we packed on all this fat and. Being totally like inexperienced runners, not knowing anything about running or even much about fitness, uh, some some friends of mine or one friend of mine in particular said, "Hey, here's what we can do to lose this fat. Let's go and run a half marathon." So, being college guys, very quickly that that escalated to a full marathon. We said, "Why why do half of anything? We're going to do a full marathon." Uh, neither of us, none of us, in fact, had uh, had ever run more than probably three miles in our entire life at a time. But we said we we want to run a marathon, and we put our heads together and we said, okay, let's, let's find a marathon to sign up for. The only marathon any of us really knew was the Boston Marathon because we didn't know anything about running. So we all went online thinking we were just going to sign up for the Boston Marathon, only to find out that you can't actually do that. You have to qualify for the Boston Marathon. So uh, I guess the the short version of the story is that we we ran this this first marathon in hopes of qualifying for Boston. Missed it by 104 minutes. The marathon went that badly. We were that terrible of runners that that we thought, even on that very morning, we thought, hey, maybe we'll still qualify for this race, even though the training had given us every indication that we wouldn't. Uh, 
we missed it by 104 minutes. Ran a, instead of running a three-hour and 10-minute marathon, we ran a four-hour and 53-minute marathon. So it ended up being you know, 103 minutes and change that we missed this thing by. Uh, and I became obsessed <laughs> with the idea of qualifying after this. So like prior to this, it had been this kind of stupid, kind of crazy you know, college guy goal. It was like, let's qualify for Boston. That, that would be amazing. And, you know, we, we went at it and tried it, but it just, it just fizzled out. And, and my friends, they, neither of them has run another marathon since the, since this, this awful day. Um, but for me, like once I missed it by that much, suddenly what Boston meant to me, it was no longer about like, I, I want to do this because I want to run the Boston marathon with those crowds and all the, all the fun it would be. It became, I want to be someone who is 104 minutes faster at a marathon than I currently am. Because what that would mean to qualify for Boston, not just to run it, but to actually qualify for it, what would that mean about my my physical abilities, uh, the amount of discipline that I had, the amount of mental toughness I would have to just have to endure the kind of pain I just endured, but do it 104 minutes faster than that. Suddenly, it just became this super compelling picture and really the first big, exciting, scary goal that I ever kind of let myself set and say, I'm going to find a way to make this happen no matter what. So it took me a long time to even get back to another marathon start line because uh, I discovered a bunch of injury issues that I had. And uh, I, so th- that's how, how I came to running. And then it was in that process uh, after about probably about five years of, of being on this Boston Marathon mission that I started to have the the ethical urge to become vegetarian. Just purely I had gotten a dog and like that had made me start thinking about animals. And I read a few different books about consciousness and spirituality and things and kind of just came to this decision on my own without really any any influences or examples in my life, but just said, I really want not to be eating animals. I just don't really feel okay about that. Um, but I didn't know what it would do to my running. I was so committed to this Boston goal that I was afraid to to just make that leap. So I kind of started you know, limiting the amount of meat I was eating, uh, but finally got to the point where my my progress toward Boston had pl- plateaued enough where I said, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to start eating vegetarian at the time because I didn't even know what vegan was. Uh, but I, I just said, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do it. And then I don't really care what happens with running. If I, if it ends up ruining everything, so be it. Uh, but that's when I started with the blog. I said, this would be a really cool experiment. I'm going to start this blog called nomeatathlete.com and just start documenting my meals and my training and all this stuff. And uh, and it worked really well. It ended up I qualified for Boston six months after I made that change. The blog found an audience. People kind of I guess kind of latched onto this to this Boston Marathon journey of mine. The the end of which was now being done on a, on a vegetarian diet. And uh, I just couldn't have asked for things to to have gone better since then. It just it just it worked. I qualified for Boston. The blog became so much more than just a blog. It eventually became my job. And uh, and then here I am talking to you. You know, right. And it's, it's so funny too to like, obviously to tell a story that takes what 10 minutes to tell, but that it was what, probably like a decade or more of your life. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> yep. I mean, more than that now, this was 2002 was when I ran that first marathon. Uh, so, you know, we're talking about almost 15 years now. So how long did it take between when you decided, okay, I really want to qualify for Boston until you actually did? Uh, it, it was about seven years between maybe six and a half years between the two marathons, between that marathon where we failed so miserably and then, and then the one where I actually did qualify. So that's basically the opposite of the overnight success, right? And <laughs> it like, took seven years, which I love, like, I love, I love hearing this. Was there, <laughs> did it feel like as 
exciting and as truly aligned, like, yes, I want to do this the whole time? Uh, no, it certainly didn't. Um, so I, I came into it with this tremendous sense of confidence and motivation. And, and basically, so it took me six marathons to get there. So, so I had the first failed marathon. I had four other failed attempts to get there before I actually did. Um, but what happened was each, each one of those attempts, I convinced myself that I was going to qualify in that very attempt. At no point did I say, uh, let's make this like a three-year goal instead of a six-month goal. And I never said like, okay, so why don't you run this marathon at this speed and then this one a little bit faster and then on this third one maybe is when you qualify for Boston. For some reason, that never occurred to me, maybe just not being a runner or maybe being young. I don't know. I just kept saying, I'm going to do it six months from now. Um, and then race day, I would say I'm going to do it today, even when I had all this evidence to say that I really probably had no business even thinking about that. Um, so that attitude in some ways helped me because it was every time I just could fool myself into thinking that I was going to do it this time, I would become tremendously motivated and like get back at it. Uh, but what would happen was that every time I would fail, I, I would get a little bit down and say like, you know, I just, I just couldn't look at it in that, in that step-by-step way. It was just like, it was either, it was either I qualified today or I failed today. And when I would fail, it, it, I would often, I would go like three months or six months without even thinking about running. And then something would happen and I would, I would just be reminded of this goal that I had, that had meant so much that I had sort of kind of let, uh, dwindle in importance in my mind. Uh, and then I would, I would kind of rekindle it and get, get going again. So, uh, so no, I mean, I think, I think during that period, there were a lot of times when I was just really discouraged and so much so that I would like kind of try to forget about it and just say, well, I'm just not going to run for a little while. Um, but it would always, it would always come back. I, I would just, con- it was this itch that just, oh, no matter what, no matter how far away I thought I got from it, it just kept coming back. Yeah. I think about that a lot with, I mean, I know kind of goals and goal setting is an interest that we share and that's also something that I want to talk about, but I think about this too, that I think there's like a misconception that I have fallen into myself that paints this picture of if you really want something, then you have to be working towards it every single day. Otherwise it's not going to happen or otherwise you don't really want it when like, I love what you just said about, okay, well then I wouldn't think about it for this many weeks or months or something. Like I think things kind of ebb and flow. And for me, the things that I actually want are the ones that after that period of a break, there's still this kind of like gnawing feeling of, okay, this is real. Like knock, knock, it's time to get back to this thing. Right. Yeah. And that's something that I am, am learning a lot more about too. Um, I, I've also kind of recognized that, I mean, you, we're talking about within a single big goal and taking breaks from it, but I used to be also of the mindset that anytime you have a big goal and you get close to achieving it, that you should have the other one lined up and ready to go so that as soon as, you know, as soon as I would qualify for Boston, I would then know exactly what I was doing next, what was my next big goal, so that I wouldn't fall into a a six-month rut from where I would just not run at all because I knew that I was sort of at risk for doing that. So that was my philosophy, and it was one that I had learned from, you know, other people who who I think should know better, but but I had learned it from other people in books and things like that. And what I've come to realize, though, is that when I was doing that, those goals that I was forcing myself to set were really artificial because my mind was only on this one particular really exciting goal that meant the world to me. And I couldn't, you know, be any sort of good judge of what was a valid next big exciting goal for me to do when I when I had another one that was my main focus. 
so what I found that I found that those goals that I was setting before I was even done with others were, were really kind of empty. And I've, I've come to realize since then a lot of people. So after I, I gave a book tour, this book tour talk, um, you know, told that Boston story, a lot of the talk is about the idea of having a big compelling goal. And a lot of people after that talk will want to ask me, they'll say, well, what is your, what's your big exciting goal now? And a lot of times it's, I don't really have one right now. I'm kind of just waiting around to be, to be struck by inspiration. Um, so I'm, I have become okay with this idea that there are seasons in our life and that there are times, you know, maybe six month periods where you're just going to, you know, make tons of progress and, and get a bunch of results and get, you know, make major headway toward your goal. And then there are going to be six month periods where you just can't even imagine getting in that state of mind where you're just, it's just not interesting for you. Uh, and, and maybe even that whole way of thinking isn't interesting for you. Maybe you're more interested in that period. In my case, I get more interested in like meditation or just hanging out with my kids or just reading books that have nothing to do with, you know, goals or, or won't possibly teach me anything about uh, a goal that I currently have. So I, I've become okay with that because I realized that only when I get that mental space and that distance from this, you know, whatever the goal is, uh, only then do I really kind of allow room for the big inspiration to come that inspiration where it hits you. And then, then you're spending three hours on the internet trying to research something. And and you have that feeling where it's like, you're, you're, you know, you're onto something. You're like, yes, this is going to be it. Um, that, that only happens. Those really exciting moments only really happen if I, if I have given myself a lot of space, uh, away from goals. So I think it's extremely important to, to recognize that there are seasons in life for lack of a better name for them. Um, during which some of which during which you're going to be super motivated and, uh, others, others during which you're not going to be motivated at all. And I think that's okay. I mean, I, I think so too. I love that you're bringing this up. I, I think too, like if I look at my own experience, cause I had, a, a you know, some years of the same thing of setting the next, you know, running goal, using running as an example before the current goal was completed. And I think, you know, it's, it's, I, I hear a lot of myself in the story that you just shared for me, I think like even digging deeper, it was also a fear. It came down to fear of a couple different things for me. I think one of it one of the reasons that I would set, you know, those kind of arbitrary goals before the the first chance to reach, you know, the first goal was completed, it was fear of the come down that happens after mm-hmm. like post goal depression, basically. Like I remember after I ran my first marathon, I had like serious post race blues that yeah. I've been working so hard towards this thing and this meant so much to me. And now I like, I almost felt like untethered, like my, like so everything in my life had been pointing towards this one thing. And then when that's over, I felt like pretty lost and I didn't allow that to be okay. And, you know, so it was like that. And then, you know, I think the other reason too, is the closer I would get to, you know, potentially completing a goal or let's say using running, like the closer I would get to race day, which is the day where you either accomplish the goal or you fail at the goal that I would start to be afraid of failure. And so I would need to have a new goal on the horizon almost so I could convince myself that I didn't actually care about the first goal that much, (laughs) right? you know, and it's so funny, these like mental games that we play with ourselves. Like I almost wanted like an out of, even if this goes badly, it's fine because I have this new thing that I'm going to do. And like that comes from a fear of being, disappointed. And it wasn't until I became okay, feeling lost. Okay. Feeling disappointed. Like those aren't 
that's not bad. Like, why is it not okay to be disappointed? Right. And I don't know. So it was like a lot of sitting with that kind of stuff for me. Yeah. Right. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I took, took as good insights as you did from, from that. But like I had those moments where I was disappointed and I, I just sort of, I think that that's, that's what would lead to the, to the three or six months off. And then, yeah, thankfully I did keep kind of bouncing back. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think that's, uh, I think that's something that I wish there were more written about and talked about is, is how do you deal with, with the failures that are really necessarily going to happen? Uh, if you, if you are dreaming big in, in the way that you and I encourage people to do, um, you know, it's like those goals that are way out there, they're the ones that take five years to get ready for, or, or three years or just something so much more than the, than the one year limitation that most people give themselves for goals. Um, there's going to be stuff that looks a lot like failure in there. And I, I think the best tool I have for it is basically just, you know, redefining it, understanding that it actually isn't failure. It is just, it is just feedback on the journey. If you can look at them as stepping stones, um, that's, that's the best way to do it. But uh, you know, it's, it's not quite that easy because there's, there's the uncertainty where any given stepping stone might turn out to be the, the, the final one might be the, the victory. Uh, when it comes to something like running and maybe some other goals, it's, you don't have that sort of, uh, uncertainty, but, but yeah, I think that's something that people, people ask about. How do you deal with, with that kind of failure? And I haven't really ever figured out a great answer for it. I know in my mind, in some amount of time, I was able to turn it into, turn it from, wow, I failed miserably and embarrassed myself today because I told all my friends to come here for, for kind of creating accountability to come watch me. And I told them how important this was for me. Uh, I did all this stuff and then I failed and now I don't want to even think about running or talk about it ever again because I missed it. You know, I, I embarrassed myself, but, but in, in this time, I don't know, some might be a few days, maybe a few months, you, you can eventually start to just see that for what it is, which is actually just progress in some, some form or another, some ways, sometimes maybe you've even gone backwards, but I mean, at the very least you have learned something in failing like that. And I think, I think you absolutely have to learn to be able to see it that way. Or, or you're not going to be able to, to get these big things that are five years off and require some amount of failure. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, I also think that our stories only make sense, like in retrospect, like it's easy to say now, you know, on the heels of those seven years and qualifying for Boston, oh, well, this led to this and this led to that. Like, we can only see that, like we can put together like the nice story or whatever. Like my best friend, Jamie, and I talk about this all the time when like one of us is having like a particularly like shit week or, you know, month or like whatever lack of confidence. We're like, oh, maybe this is going to be the part in our like E! True Hollywood story that like, you know, not obviously like we're exaggerating it's not like rock bottom but like any story of people that I look up to or that do these things like there's always many periods of like the dark night of the soul and it's just it's so hard when you're in it to remember like this is going to be part of a bigger story if I keep going right yeah it is extremely hard to remember that while you're in it uh I don't have any advice for people other than to know that you know to hear to hear us talking about it um you know might might help someone see when, when, when they're in that moment, be able to actually take a little bit broader perspective and say this, maybe this isn't the, the end all failure. This is just one of those dark nights. 
Uh, but, but man, it is hard. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> it's, it's definitely hard. But also, I mean, I have no advice either. Like this is my new thing that I'm like really trying to step into. Like I have no wisdom for anyone. Like I just don't. But I think that one of the, one of the things that has hurt me is the false belief that someone out there does have this, like, you know, 10 steps to deal with failure or whatever, like that this belief that there is some like easier or less painful, way of going about things that like, I just don't know about yet. Or like that type of, whereas I actually think like ha- wanting something and having it not happen is really disappointing. Okay. Like that's, or like try, even when you, you know, you really want something and it's taking longer than you think like that we're real, we're humans. And like this stuff is like messy and hard. And so the only, I mean, the only thing that makes me feel better is hearing other people have conversations like this. I'm just like, yeah, we have no wisdom, but we've both been there. And like, it sucks. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually curious. Another thing I'd love to hear about is have you ever had a goal either that you, you know, shared publicly or even that you just like had for yourself that you wound up deciding to let go of because it was no longer a good fit for you? You know, I, I do, I have one of those, but I ended up getting it because it ended up coming back. I thought it was done. And, and that this was running my first hundred miler. So this was my, I ran a 50 mile race after I qualified for Boston. That was my next big goal. And it wasn't nearly as hard. It only took me, uh, you know, nine months, just did the training program and then went and did it and didn't, didn't fail or anything. Um, and then I did another one or two, maybe I think just one more after that, immediately after that. Uh, and then I set this hundred mile goal. And, and for me, the hundred mile goal was, was like, learning what I learned from the Boston journey. And I learned a lot about, you know, the, the process of goal setting in, in that whole, that whole process. And when I found this hundred miler goal, when this thing hit me and said, you know, for the first time, I, I just let myself believe that I could run a hundred miles. And then it, it was the first time. Cause like before this, when I was just in marathon mode, uh, I remember someone telling me that a, that a friend of ours, a mutual friend uh, had run a hundred miles and I, and I thought he was lying. Like, I just didn't know that people even did that. And I thought, there's no way someone could do that because I know how it feels to be done a marathon. And I know how just completely obliterated you are. There's, there's not a way for a person to run 100 miles. So it took me a while to actually start to believe that, that not just can people, I mean, I, I found out, of course, that people do run 100 miles. Uh, but it took me a long time to get into the point where I said, okay, I could actually do that. Because, you know, for a while I thought, okay, people can do that, but that's not something that I can do. Uh, but I did become convinced that I could and got really excited about it, did the whole internet thing, trying to find the perfect race, uh, found it, signed up for it, wrote a blog post about it, all these things, doing what I thought you should do and, and what I wanted to do, um, you know, to create accountability. So I did all that, uh, but I never even went for a single training run for that, for that race. I just, I think it was, although I had, had come to believe on some level that it was possible for me, what, what I had to go through to get there, the amount of, I I looked at some, some training schedules and the amount of, you know, 24 mile runs followed the next day by a 12 or 13 mile run. It was just this, this totally different form and, and volume of training than, than I had ever done before. So I think that just kind of, after I'd made this initial commitment, I kind of realized what I was in for. And I could just, I never got myself to actually go and start that training. I never said like, here's the start date. Here's the time to do it. I just kind of like put it aside and never really did it. So, uh, 
I don't know. After that happened, I think I deferred the entry or something, but really with no plans to ever do it. And then I moved and just became all interested in moving to this place called Asheville, North Carolina, where we live now. And, you know, just, just forgot about the hundred mile goal. And it was this little thing in the back of my mind that was kind of this, this, this failure that I had, had done after, after all the Boston success, this was my failure. And I was okay with that. I, I just said like, I thought I could do it, but I was naive and it, it was silly. Um, I'm just not, it's just not something I'm going to do. So I, I had put that behind me and said, it, it is not happening. And I think like two or three years after that, I ended up running one. Uh, so I, I had completely given up on this goal. I, I was done with it and really got completely out of running actually went through what was probably the most difficult part of my life. Um, this, this six month period or so where I just had tremendous anxiety around my health and, 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 really without any good reason. I mean, I just had weird symptoms that the doctors didn't know what was wrong. Um, and it, it, nothing was even wrong. It was just little weird symptoms that I blew up out of proportion in my head to, to like, this is some super serious thing that doctors just aren't identifying. And I got, just was like, couldn't do anything for like six months, really didn't do anything. And I, seeing a, uh, a, a psychotherapist person who said like, you really just need to to make sure you're exercising because it's just one of these known tools that helps people deal with anxiety. And I don't remember what what book. I, mean, I guess I had read a book then called um, Body, Mind, Sport, Body, Mind, and Sport, which was this totally different approach to running. It was based in like these, these Ayurvedic tradition, um, which is this sort of Indian form of medicine and uh, just – it kind of like he, he advocated breathing only through your nose, not even having your mouth open while you're running, uh, which meant for me having to slow down my running pace tremendously just to, to be able to, to run for 20 minutes, breathing only through my nose. Cause it's, it's pretty hard if you, if you're used to mouth breathing. Um, but I did that started focusing on my breath, started actually like lining my steps up with my breathing. So it became this very meditative thing where I would take um, one long in breath for about six steps and then breathe out for six more steps. And as I got better and better at this, I could even lengthen those breaths where I was taking, I don't know, it was probably like four or five breaths per minute, like a very, very low amount of breaths considering I was running. Um, and like up to probably nine steps on the, on the inhale and nine steps on the outhale or the exhale. Um, I, I stopped running with, a, with, Sorry, stop paying attention to any kind of mileage. I just put on a watch and said, "I'm going to go run for 20 minutes today," because that was my goal at first. When this, I, you know, my running, I, it was just torn down to the point where that was all I could get myself to do. And at the same time, I um, was was doing this thing of Leo Babata's on Zen Habits called his Sea Change Program, and it was this habit formation thing. And I was kind of learning about how do you form habits, and I was like, you know what, this is actually kind of nice. This 20 minute running I'm going to do. I'm going to make this a daily thing. I'm going to start running every single day and just and just keep doing this and I'm going to gradually increase the amount of time that I do it for. So then I started running for 25 minutes and then after another week of that, it became 30 minutes. And I ended up running for like 75 days in a row or something, which is the only running streak of any time I've ever done. Um, but that, as it turned out, became the base for my 100-mile training. So I had was not intending at all to run a 100-miler. I had forgotten about that goal and through this process, this just meditative, no goal mindset built a base that became adequate because I was up to, I got up to like 70 minutes a day that I was doing and I was doing it every day at the end of this thing. And by the end of that, I was, I was in pretty good running shape and especially in pretty good running shape for a race like that, 
where it's just all about going out and managing and paying attention to your breath and making sure you're not overexerting yourself. Um, you know, no speed work or hill work. I guess hill work's kind of helpful, but but no speed work required for something like a hundred miler. Uh, so it turned out to be a really great base that I had built for ultra marathon training. And after like three months of running like that, I I found a program and it was six months long, and I did that program uh, at a much slower pace than I'd ever run anything before. And then then the hundred miler happened. So so I, I had completely given up on it. So I feel sort of. Uh, ashamed that that I did that I end up having a happy ending to my story for my for my goal <laughs> that I was supposed to give it up on um but but no I think that's that's probably the closest I mean I'm sure I've had other things where where I've I've fallen in love with the idea of doing something uh but then after you know after a month of work towards it or something said this just isn't really happening or I, I'm not nearly as motivated now as I was uh and just decided it wasn't worth it yeah, I'm so, I mean, a lot of this conversation for me is like very selfish because I'm like in such kind of a reconsidery place with my relationship with running that I'm so curious about other people's like journeys, especially people like you that have been running for quite a long time and the kind of ebbs and flows of of that and like of different goals. And I guess, how, what's the next question that I want to ask? I'm like, how do I turn this existential thing into a question? Um, is, I mean, I'm curious about kind of your current relationship with running and, you know, also, especially given that, I mean, no meat athlete, like it went from this blog that you started to your business, right. And being a runner is part of that. Like, how does your identity as a runner or like, do you ever feel pressure that I have to keep doing this thing? Cause this is my business or I don't know, just anything in that, if that sparks something for you. Yeah, I mean, for for a long time I did feel that pressure and and I felt very guilty when I would take these 3 and 6 month breaks from running even though like now that we talk about it I, I remember that they were totally a part of me as a runner uh before No Meat Athlete existed. They they were like what it took for me to get back out there and run another marathon. It it was required for some reason for me to like forget about running, get take so much time off that I forgot about it, and then I'd get excited about it again. And that just seems to be the way that I operate. So once uh once Nomi Athlete became a not just like a job and, and a blog, but but something where in the early days it was kind of about my running, like I made it had been about the runs that I was doing, and and when I didn't have a big exciting goal. It, the content on the blog suffered and, and I, you know, I, I wasn't there to inspire other people with the stuff I was doing and the insights I was having. So, uh, that, that was really difficult for me. And I, I basically never really solved it. I just kind of came to the realization that, that that's not who I am as a runner. Like I, I can't be someone who constantly does that. And I shouldn't feel guilty for the times, the the tremendous gaps in some runners' minds would say that that's that's a ridiculous amount of inconsistency. Um, but I, I realize that like that's that's what I am as a runner. I, I'm not someone who goes out there and runs because he loves it and and needs to get it in for that day to feel like a good day. Um, I mean, I I like runner running. I I tolerate it. I, I've gotten beyond tolerating it to the point where it's really enjoyable for me to go listen to something uh, or or do it in a meditative way. Uh, or or if I'm in in that mindset, then you know doing some sort of hard workout. Like I can I can enjoy that stuff, but it's never been the thing that I need in order to to be happy or feel fulfilled. Um, so I don't know. I've realized that I'm kind of a different runner. Running to me has has been 
this means of, of proving to myself that I'm capable of things that uh, not all that long ago seemed impossible. And I think that's a, it's really nice to have some sort of vehicle that can teach you things like that. So um, I've realized that that's what running is to me. And, and as a result, I've kind of gotten to the point where I am totally fine with, with myself not being in, in kind of a, a interested in running space. Um, and I actually, as, as it turned out, that ended up also influencing the way that uh, I've run no mean athlete. I've kind of realized that like, if I want this thing to be sustainable and to, to not suffer when I'm in one of those periods where I'm not running, or what if I didn't run for a whole year? What, what would happen to normal athlete then? So that kind of made me realize that I needed to make this thing uh, into a business that, that doesn't depend entirely on me as the face of it or as the, the front person for it. So uh, that, that's really what, what a lot of the efforts of the past year or two years have been like the running groups thing that that's a huge motivator for that the idea of creating something where people can unite under this no meat athlete flag uh or t-shirt or whatever it is without without me and and some of these people who join these running groups don't even know who i am and i think that is wonderful that that is actually happening that way uh so now now we're trying to actually in fact just before we jumped on skype i had a conversation with doug who's our uh the co-host of no meat athlete radio about uh, the next phase, which is going to be him taking over as the editor-in-chief of the blog and pulling together different guest content, some some stuff from paid writers, a little bit from me now and then, uh, some stuff from him. But but it being this this community blog that is about the movement, um, not not about you know Matt Frazier's run today or, or me talking about my struggles. And I mean, I'm certainly I, I will want to still write about my struggles because people actually like when I write about struggles. Uh, just as much as they like when I write about things that are going really well, so I will still write about that stuff. Um, but the point is to get it where it doesn't it doesn't depend on that, and it doesn't suffer just because I'm not feeling like running right now. Uh, so anyway, where I am actually now with running is I haven't really done that much of it since the hundred miler. I mean, I've I've done it. I've done some races. I've gone to some runners' world events and done their half marathons and, and stayed in shape for that and had to get in shape. Um, I've had little mini goals of of doing other hundred milers. Or last year, I was trying to. I was thinking I was going to try to train to qualify or not. Yes, requalify for Boston, but actually break three hours in the marathon. Get get a you know two fifty nine or two fifty eight, which would just be unbelievable for me because that starting out as a runner who was approaching five hours as my marathon time, uh, something with a two in front of it is is almost unthinkable. Um, but I I started training. You know, it was actually going fairly well. But just some unfortunate stuff happened when we we went uh, on a really cool Italy trip last year, a vegan Italy trip, uh, and came home to our house being totally flooded. And with two kids, we had to scramble to find a place to live. So we like slept on friends' floors for a few months. It was really a mess. Um, And I mean, you know, here I am giving an excuse for why things didn't work out. That's not why it didn't work out. I think I think if if it was a really meaningful goal to me. I would have found a way to just to stick with it and at least have given an attempt. But as, as it was, I ended up not even running that marathon and just deferring it until next year. So, um, I, I, you know, I haven't really found a, a, a really exciting running goal that's enough to, to motivate me the way Boston did. And I honestly don't know if I will. I, I mean, I have some ideas. There's some really cool races I'd love to run one day, but like right here and now what I'm doing is going to the gym with my wife. Uh, we go every single morning. We spend an hour there, uh, we don't go on weekends, but we go every weekday morning for an hour, which to me is crazy. Like after, after ultra running for five years, 
where, like I said, it's kind of a slow paced run. Um, it doesn't have to be, you can, you can put forth more effort into speed work and things like that. If you want, if you're a really serious ultra runner, but I did it for the, for the, you know, partly because it was such a change from marathon training. It was, you could do it in this sort of slower laid back fashion and just make it this, this, uh, battle of survival rather than a speed thing. Uh, so I, you know, trained at a very slow pace for about five years and, after that, thinking about spending an hour in the gym, like when, when ultra running, when going for a leisurely run with some headphones on was my idea of how I stay in shape and my exercise. The idea of spending an hour in a gym for like even two or three days a week, that became something that, that was like a tremendous um, cha- just mental thing to get over that I was going to do this. Uh, so now the fact that we're up to five days a week, I feel like is, is quite a victory. Um, and I'm really enjoying it. I, I've it's been really fun to get back in the gym and, and not, you know, put on a little weight, not be as skinny as it used to be. And, uh, I, I am really totally happy with, with having found this other kind of fitness fitness outlet for now. And when I, when I get bored of that, which I, I certainly will, cause I, I, I know myself, I know I get bored of things. Um, I don't know. I don't know that it'll, it'll be running that I go to next. Maybe I'll find some other kind of out there sport that, that I am now equipped to do for having gone to the gym for, you know, a year or whatever. Um, so I'm really excited to, to, you know, just to have this sort of new, new outlook on fitness. Uh, and it's right now is one that doesn't really involve much running, which is, which is totally cool by me. My God, Matt, I'm obsessed with everything that you just said. So especially (laughs) things that I want to underscore that I think were super brilliant. Um, this idea, and I think this is pretty common with anyone who has a business, a blog, a thing that started like in conjunction with their personal story. Like I know that was my experience, like your experience too, like any of this kind of lifestyle business thing that is very wrapped up in like your personal choices. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you get to the point of exactly what you said, like this isn't going to be sustainable if the only way that I can, let's say make money is if I keep running or if I, you know, like if it's so like tied into me as a person and like how I spend my time and my fit, like if there's that, I think that can cause a lot of pressure for people because then it's, you almost have to become this like caricature of yourself and like that the line of separation between like business and personal life can get, I think really stressful. Yeah, and I think I think what makes it even um, scarier or, or something else, you know, uh, uh, a risk, uh, a very more <laughs> makes it even more real of a risk. I'm trying to say um, is that I think, like in my case, I was so motivated by the by the blog by it taking off and and this idea that now I might have started a business that was going to become what I do for a living and a really cool job where it's flexible and I get to travel and I get to you know impact people, so. Once that became really motivating, uh, that that spilled over into running, and it it was like I, I could become that caricature of myself, and I could do that for about three years. For three years, I could I could run consistently the way that I had never run in my life. Not because running was so exciting to me, but because this whole thing now running as part of this me who was the blogger and and what that meant for the blog, like that that was all one thing and it was all very exciting. So I was able to sustain that for a few years. And I think, I think people can, you can play the part of the person that you're wanting to be so that, so it's, it's not like people are getting the, the really a glimpse of the real you. They're getting a glimpse of the you that, that you have, you know, are putting this, this best version of you forward for the blog. And you can do that for a few years, but you, you get to a point where you realize that you can't anymore and you can't keep doing that. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's not as good as if you had just been yourself from the beginning, then it'd be somewhat easier to, to get away from that caricature of yourself. 
Yeah, I'm really grateful we're having this conversation because I, again, hear a lot of myself and what you just shared. I mean, and I've talked publicly in a bunch of different places, different podcast episodes, other things about kind of my running journey, running story, or where I'm at with it right now. And, you know, just to kind of share a a story back, uh, given, you know, what I'm thinking of, I mean, for me, grappling with kind of the place of running in my life, it does have to do with, it's not just whether or not I'm going to run. Cause like running is just an activity, right? It's a tool, it's a thing, but it's definitely has its claws into a lot of these other things, right? When people know you as something, or when you've done very public running things, I mean, for me starting running like the same day that I quit drinking, like it was really a survival tool, not in a staying sober way, but in a different identity way, like the same way that we talked about at the beginning where you know, switching to a vegan diet can potentially be isolating. Like I found quitting drinking to potentially be very isolating because that was my entire life. That was my entire social life. So having this new shiny running thing, this whole community I could join, this new person that I could be, like I really needed to be able to take one identity and immediately shift it over into something else. Like it was a very helpful tool for me. And I think that's what I needed in order to be able to make those changes. And exactly what you just said about it's like a kind of, positive feedback loop of you're doing that publicly and then that's growing your blog and that makes you want to run more right? like that that really does sustain for a period of time and that was definitely my experience and you know that was even obviously you and I have talked you know when I back when I had the goal of running across America and you know planning and training for that for 15 18 months like I was so in that goal and so much of it in retrospect was doing that goal for the wrong reasons. Like I thought that I needed to do something really big or like you have to keep escalating, right? Cause like, well, I've, I've done this and I've run marathons and okay, well then I ran two marathons back to back. And then it's like, what's next. Right. And I kept feeling like I had like, and it wasn't, I genuinely thought I really wanted to do it. And I'm sure that there is some parts of that goal that carry over into other goals for me. Like I love the idea of a pilgrimage type thing or of pushing yourself to do something hard or just anything like that. But that can be accomplished in a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be this like very big kind of sexy public thing. And when I wound up getting injured and just, you know, kind of needing to stop training for that, I was actually pretty relieved. Like I didn't realize that I was pursuing (laughs) the wrong goal until I got injured and couldn't run. And I was like, Oh, thank God. Like that was a lot (laughs) of my feeling. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Right. Cause as opposed to being devastated, you know, and, um, Obviously, this could be a much longer story. You know, my life had changed in that time. I got married and my husband didn't really want to spend six months like going across the country, whatever. Anyway, so in deciding not to do that, then it was funny, like on the heels of that, I thought, okay, well, if I'm not going to do this, I have to transfer into doing something else. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to try to run like the fastest 5k that I can. And that was enough motivation for me to spend, you know, four or five months like training really hard to, okay, well, I told people I was going to do this thing and I'm not going to do that. So now, but don't worry, shiny distraction thing. I'm going to do this other thing, right? (laughs) It's just so Mm -hmm. funny how, anyway, so this came full circle to ahead last year. Um, I was training for my first ultra marathon and was miserable. Like I was just so unhappy and I hated it so much. And then basically wound up stopping being like, I'm doing this for the wrong reasons. If I couldn't put the finish line of this race on Instagram, I wouldn't do it. So, okay, I'm not doing it. That's not a good enough reason to do something. And I didn't run like a step for six months. And uh-huh. it's just interesting, like kind of reevaluating the relationship with, like, cause I think our relationships with things change over time. Yeah, it really is. Um, I think I, I, it's, you know, like people can, I, I, and I wonder how many people look at that, at what you did and say, well, she, she failed, you know, like she doesn't have it anymore. Um, so I think it's really interesting to, you know, just, just to look at it from this different perspective and like for someone to, to hear you. And I think they would believe you if they heard you, but 
you know, understand that you are totally okay with with the fact that that you're not doing that anymore and that you quit it and that you and that it's like a victory. I mean, you learned you learned this amazing thing about about yourself and, and what you feel like when when you have a goal that matters versus one that that you're doing for the wrong reasons, like you said. Uh, I think I think that kind of stuff is just is just fascinating, and I and I think it it's I've learned so many lessons like this in the past five years of my life. Like so much more have I learned in this past. So it's not not at all to say that like um, you know having a blog and having the the this maybe this false uh, this false motivation to run and be this person you're not and and be the caricature of yourself. Um, it's like, I don't know if any of that's a bad thing because I feel like I've learned so much about myself and how I set goals and how I respond to challenges and things like from that, that, that I, I just can't imagine how growing in this way or, or in this magnitude, I just can't imagine any other path kind of causing me to, to ha- learn that much of myself and grow that much. So, uh, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound to me like you're, you're taking it all as a, as, as a defeat or anything. Uh, No, definitely. I mean, and I agree in terms of personal growth, like, and I, every single step of, you know, the four years that I was running, what like was so fantastic and so necessary. And there was never a point where I was like, I'm doing this thing that I don't want to do for the wrong reasons. Like it was for me more, once I realized that then making some changes, you know, Mm -hmm. like as that stuff, like it never felt fake. It never felt forced. Like it was genuinely what I wanted to be doing. I mean, in a lot of ways it like saved my life, right. And changed my life a lot. So, you know, I think for me, it's more just kind of the grappling with, and obviously we're using running as like the arena in which to talk about this, but I think someone could hear this and apply it to their business or to a relationship or to lots of other things. But this idea that, okay, what do you do in the moment when you start to realize this thing that you thought was a really good fit is no longer a really good fit. And that was like the point that was really most interesting to me. Like when I was training for that ultra, I was pretty miserable for like six to eight weeks before I actually decided to do anything about it. Cause one of my, I don't know, I guess like philosophies, beliefs, or like life approaches, whatever, however you want to put it is I really believe in trusting your feelings on a big picture, but not on a day-to-day basis. Meaning like you can still do the thing, even if you're not in the mood to do the thing. Like I would have never run a marathon if I only ran when I was in the mood to run. Right. Right. But sure. if you stack up enough of those days of, I don't want to, and like eventually like six weeks had gone by, eight weeks gone by and I was, okay, I'm still not enjoying this. I'm still miserable. There's a change needs to be made here. And I don't know. I just always think that's an interesting thing to get to the point for me of like giving myself permission to change, I guess. Yeah. So when, when, uh, when do you give yourself that permission? Like, like at what point do you say, this isn't just me having trouble summoning the willpower to go out and get it done this day. This is actually something that I, I, I'm realizing I, this has happened enough times that I realize this goal isn't actually something I'm, I want. Uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I'd be curious to flip it back and hear your answer too, but my, I don't, it's not like a set. Okay, do this, do this. A couple of the things that have helped me, one of the most powerful has been kind of what I just described like deferring that decision. So like if I notice, Oh, Hey, huh, I've really not wanted to do, you know, X thing for, the past couple days. And I start to get into that place of, well, should I be doing it? Should I not? And I start to get really anxious about feeling like I need to make a decision right then. And then what I'll do is I'll pull out, this is so funny to talk through this process, but I'll pull out my planner. Like I still have an old school paper planner and I'll, you know, scan forward in the calendar, maybe four weeks, maybe six weeks, usually something in there and just put a note on the calendar to basically like revisit that like running question mark. And for some reason, it just helps me a lot to tell myself, 
it's totally fine that you don't want to do this right now. Why don't you just keep doing it? Because you said you would, and you have this set time in the future to reevaluate. And then when that four week or six week period comes, this is exactly what happened with running. I had had a conversation with my husband where I was like, I really don't want to do this. Like, I just want you to hear that I've said this out loud so that six weeks from now, if I'm still miserable, you can remind me that I've been miserable for six weeks. And I find that then when that day comes around, it's a lot easier to, I don't know, to make a decision or to do something differently. I mean, I was the same thing in, you know, a past relationship that I felt maybe wasn't the right relationship and, you know, made that note in my head, essentially like a year before we actually wound up ending the relationship, you know, and that's, I don't know, that's, it's, it's helpful for me to give myself some time to just keep doing the thing to see if it's just a little phase. I don't know. How do you handle that? Right. You know, I don't, I don't think I have a good answer. Um, I, I certainly don't have like a, like a test that says, is, is this just day to day not feel like it? Or is this a really serious sign? Um, I, I just, I know that I've, I've gotten good at recognizing when it's time to, to not do something and when it's time to, or, and when it's time to just, you know, bear down and do it. Um, it's funny what you said about taking a break was actually one of my strategies in my hundred miler was, was, because because you could ask the same question right is like when when should you quit in an ultra marathon and in something where it's not about time it's about are you going to finish or are you not just like a goal you're going to get it done or you're not um there there's an argument to be to be had in your head right if if after 60 miles you kind of start hurting a little bit which which you're going to uh newsflash if, if anyone's has has hopes of doing something like that <laughs> Right, 60 um, miles, that's going to be painful at some point. Yeah, right. I hear you. <laughs> right, you're going to start hurting, and you're going to start really wanting to quit. Uh, but but at what point do you decide, do you, do you, you know, decide that, yes, actually, it's not just I need to be tougher right now. At some point, it becomes in your best interest actually to quit. I mean, and, and maybe there are times when you can just tough it out. But But some of these things turn into real actual injuries, and people get seriously injured because they didn't quit early enough. Uh, or they get they get you know in some sort of life threatening condition because they didn't quit early enough when they should have. So that's a discussion. My wife was like my my head crew member. She and my dad and my mom and like a couple other people were just kind of there helping me. And um, you know there was this question of like, well, what would they do? What if, what if I thought I needed to stop? Should they just let me stop, or should they keep encouraging me to to keep going? Like, how should that all work? Uh, and what, what I decided was, if I ever just say I'm going to stop, just convince me first to take a nap and like just because in a hundred mile race you have time to do that you can take an hour or you could take a three hour nap maybe and and depending on how fast you were in the rest of the time you might be able to still finish that race so i kind of came to that decision that was just like if i ever feel like i'm going to stop before i actually quit the race what i'm going to first do is just lay down and take a nap and and when when i wake up from that then maybe I'll be in a little bit a better mind to make a decision like that, which has struck me as sort of funny because that's kind of what what your uh, approach is for something much longer term, and it's just sort of like put it off and and I'll just I'll just make the decision later. But for now, keep going. I guess in my case, it would have been for now, take a nap. Um, yeah, no, I, I I love that. I feel like I mean, there's and there's a lot of stuff that we could talk about around this, but. I, something else that's helpful for me. I mean, obviously, I've never been in that hundred miler situation, but I I think too how do I want to say this? That like life is long. So removing the pressure of like, this is my only chance to ever do this thing. Right. And maybe yeah. for some very rare things, that's true. But like even at mile 60 of a hundred miler, if for any number of reasons you didn't do it, that's not your only chance ever to do a hundred miler. So I think sometimes 
I create false pressure for myself. If you don't do this now, it's never going to happen, which isn't true, you know? And the other thing that I think that, I mean, and I kind of said that in jest about the social media thing of, you know, if I couldn't post on Instagram from the finish line of this ultra, would I still do it? But I think there's a lot of deeper truth to that. Like I'm, I'm, I, I love social media and I love sharing things that I'm excited about, but I think there's an inherent difference between, I did experienced or accomplished something that was inherently meaningful to me and I want to share it with people because I'm excited or proud versus the only reason I'm doing this is because I want people to think X, Y, Z about me. Yeah. Right. Right. So I go to that sometimes too. Like, okay. Like real talk, Nicole, like, why are you doing this? (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I don't know. running. We'll see. uh, It's an interesting conversation. I think the whole idea of when you should quit and when, when you should keep going, um, because like, like, I mean, that, that conversation I mentioned with, with my wife or with the crew and them saying like, you should stop or me saying I should stop and like them deciding whether they should keep pushing me forward because they know that's what's best or, or should they actually listen and think maybe, maybe Matt actually does know what he's talking about, even though he's, you know, might also be delirious right now. We don't know. Um, my, like my wife and I had that same discussion with other goals. Like when, when it's the evening and I'm like, well, man, I just don't this, I don't know the, the, like last year with the marathon, I was like, this just isn't happening. Like, I think, I think her tendency is to, is to keep pushing and say, you can do it. You can do it. You, this is just temporary. Like, and that's, I think a lot of people get in that, um, state and like, and, and we're kind of taught to think that's, that's the way you should be. Right. You just say like, this is a temporary pain. You can tough it out. You can get through this. Um, but, but at what point does, you know, do you actually know something more? And is it, is it, is it a, is it a real legitimate reason to, to think about quitting? So I think it's a really interesting discussion. I don't have any kind of good answer. Like it seems to be a theme of our conversation here, but well, which I love. Right. But I, but I think there is something to be said for like making it okay within yourself to quit things like yeah. that. There has that it, if you, if it's like you said, like if you have like this cultural belief or whatever belief that, it's not okay to, to ever change your mind, then it's going to be a lot harder in those situations. I don't know. For me, the last thing that I'll, I'll really say about this, and then I want to talk um, kind of about your vegan journey also, but is that I think in, in the moment, right, when you said like, oh, it's, it's, it's nighttime, I'm tired, or like if it's so easy to say, like to relate this to like going to the gym or going for a run or whatever, I can all, I also try to think, okay, well, how am I going to feel when this thing is done? Right. Like trying to base it less on my like in the moment feelings of Mm -hmm. like there's really other than this period of time where running was miserable. I'm always happy that I did the thing. Right. And so like same thing with like writing, like I'm very resistant to sitting down at the blank page. But if I'm able to like wrangle my crazy brain enough to be like, okay, Nicole, but like in an hour when you're done, you're going to be happy. So just like do this hour like that. I find a little helpful, too. But the, the biggest thing and this is why I know that maybe running for me right now or at least running in like a training for something way isn't a good fit is that I don't have that like inherent, like deep hunger or fire that I used to have that like, even in those training cycles where there were days when it was hot or cold or raining or didn't want to, I still wanted to. And like, that's, it's hard to explain if someone hasn't been in that situation, but like, I didn't want to, but I wanted to, right? Like that, but sometimes that's just not there. Like right now, like the most honest thing I can say about like, yeah, sure. Like I want to break six minutes in the mile. I want to do, there's like things that I would love to do, but I don't want to do the, I don't want them enough to do the work it's going to take to get them. (laughs) The most honest thing I can say, you know? Yeah. Right. And that's, and that's a great um, thing that a lot of people don't think about with, with like when, when in the moment when you were setting goals, 
a really good question to ask yourself because like all, every goal setting thing begins with dream big, right? Like get down on paper, all these crazy ideas, throw off any limitations. What would you do if, if you knew you could not fail? All those kinds of things. But like the next question to ask is, am I willing to do the work that it takes to get this thing? And, and for so many of those, those goals that you got down during the brainstorming phase, the phase, the the answer is no. Like I'm 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 not willing to do what it takes to get to the Olympics, even though I put that down as one of my things I would do if I could not fail. So like that's a question worth asking. I think people get hung up because they they don't ask that. They they just they think that thinking big that, that that's what it is. Just brainstorm all the all the huge ideas and then and then commit to them because you you've suspended disbelief during during these moments. But like that's just the first step. Then you have to actually ask those things. Am I willing to actually do what this takes? And if you're not, then you're, you need a better goal because otherwise you're going to, you're going to never start training. Like I didn't with the first time I tried to go after a hundred miler. Totally. Totally. Well, it's like, I think this idea of these like big sexy dreams, right. And I think this is something you and I have talked about, like they're only accomplished one tiny and very unsexy step at a time. And like different goals require like different kinds of suffering and different kinds, I think more than suffering, just like boredom, the like daily slog of whether it's like writing a book or doing like, it's just not sexy most of the time. So it's kind of like choosing the goal where like the, the, this it's like the least objectionable slog or like the slog and suffering that you can find like the most meaning and purpose from, which yeah, it's like not as like fun and like vision boardy of a way to look at things. But, like that's real. Like it's, it takes a long time to do a lot of these things, you know? And it's like, do you want to do that every day? Yeah. Right. I love we it. Should mention, uh, Seth Godin has a book called The Dip, by the way, that, that is about this very topic, when to quit and when to keep going. And I feel like since I mentioned him earlier and now I'm talking exactly about the topic of one of his books, I should mention it. Yeah, he's so great. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes for sure. All right. Good. So you mentioned briefly kind of the, the period of time where you were like, ooh, maybe it doesn't feel so good to eat animals anymore. But I'd love for you to tell kind of that story or how that evolved into where you are now. Sure. Uh, as much of it as I can remember, because I, I, you know, before I knew that this was going to become a lifestyle and then my living, I didn't really, uh, <laughs> I don't know, stop and write everything down that, that was going through my head. So it's kind of a blurry year or two uh, during which I, I made this transition. I, I, I mean, a bunch of little influences happened. Uh, I was I was in grad school at the time. I remember I got some sort of pamphlet from some kind of vegan outreach company, I don't know, showing a bunch of animals, um, you know, chickens being de-beaked and other stuff. And, and like, it's funny because I'm, I'm like the opposite of that type of uh, of person who would go out and leaflet now. Like that, that's not my approach of spreading this message. But I, I really do think that was one of the things that, like one of the little things that I, I just, I didn't throw that, thing, that little leaflet away. I just kept it and I kind of kept it on my desk and I just kept looking back at it thinking, um, like, man, it would be really cool if I could make that work. But but in my head was, you can't make that work. Like, I liked cooking too much. My One of the things I did with my dad, who lived nearby me at the time, was like we would just always cook dinners and then have the other one over, and, and as long as with our spouse too, um, and eat those. And it was like, I just would think like, man, if I go vegetarian, not even vegan, because I didn't even, like I said, didn't really even know what that was or didn't even know that was a thing. It was like, if I go vegetarian, all that stuff is is going to end like it was just like you it just seemed to me that it is not acceptable to do that you can't make those kind of demands of other people that when whenever you're around that's you know they serve something that's that's fit for you and i just like didn't really consider it but i i did consider 
I, I said, I can get by without eating cows and pigs. Like almost every restaurant has chicken on the menu. So I can keep doing that. I can keep getting the protein from that because I was concerned about that too. Uh, I figured if I, if I, as long as I ate chicken, the, the instances would be pretty rare when I had to tell somebody that I couldn't eat what they were serving or that I couldn't come to their party because there was nothing for me to eat or, you know, all these different things that I would kind of worry about in my head before I made that choice. Um, but what I, what I, and I had, I had no idea that I was, that I was doing this, you know, the small steps approach that I now teach people to do. Um, when I, when I spent an entire year not eating beef or pork. So I did that. And as it turned out in the process, I learned all these things and I became really, really comfortable at, at going to a restaurant and just ordering off that part of the menu and like just stopped even seeing the other part. And I got good at, at telling people because it was a pretty easy thing to talk about. Uh, I'm not eating red meat or pork these days. It's like, I'm just not doing that. So, uh, you know, I can either bring my own dish or I can eat ahead of time. You know, no pressure on you to make something for me, but I just want to let you know now rather than create an awkward moment later. And I just, it just got easy. So I, I got to the point where I said, you know what, like all that other stuff, I thought it was going to be really hard. Um, but I think I'm actually ready to make that switch and go further with this. And, and I just, I said, I'm going to do it for 10 days or something. I think I even ate fish during that 10 days, but I said, I'm going to do this and treat it like I'm vegetarian kind of, um, and, and it ended up being fine. I, at the end of 10 days, I said, I'm going to do that for 30 days. And then at some point in there, I phased out the fish. And then and then after that, it, it really was easy. I didn't have to, I mean, the social stuff that I had worried about, the protein thing, all that stuff, it really just sort of evaporated. It was never uh, a big issue. It wasn't a hard change. But I think it's because I took those gradual steps to get there. And it kind of gave me time at each phase to to learn how to do it. So, um, I mean, that that's how I did it as far as like, you know, a deeper reason why I, I really don't know why, like I said, I, I got a dog and that was, that motivated me. I just thought like, I, I just really connected with this animal and thought pigs are, pigs are a lot like that dog in terms of intelligence. So I just, I don't feel like I can eat something like that. It just feels wrong to me. And, uh, and that was it. I didn't, I didn't read books about ethics. I didn't, I didn't really think through whether or not humans should eat meat. I just felt like I don't really feel like I want to do this anymore, so I'm not going to. And I think I saw a few documentaries, read a few little books, um, and just and it just it just fit. It just made sense for me, and uh, and I did it. And it really has been a, a very very low stress thing. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, about the pamphlets. You're like, well, I'm not that kind of vegan. Who's going to like pass out the pamphlets or do whatever? So as far as like spreading the message, uh, like what kind are you, or like how 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 do you feel about kind of your role in spreading this message now? Uh, I've come to really like it and I've come to like, uh, I guess embrace being, being one of those, I think probably one of the, one of the first people, um, just because the internet wasn't around when we were kids, but like, so one of the first people who kind of got on the internet and started spreading it in this, this way that people aren't really accustomed to. Cause I think what people are accustomed to is the leafleting thing. Like I, that was another reason why I didn't want to do it, become vegan at first or become vegetarian is because I just thought like, if I did that, then I was becoming one of those people. And I was becoming someone who pushed this on people. And I was becoming someone who, if anyone knew I was vegetarian, then they would be expecting me to treat them that way. And they'd put their guard up around me and they, they would roll their eyes behind my back. And I, I didn't want any of that stuff. I, I just, I'm not someone who's in your face or pushy. Like I said, I'm kind of introverted. Uh, I've always been like extremely averse to salesmanship of any kind. And just like, you know, I, I hate being in the situation where someone's selling to me like a, 
like, and they just won't let me go. So I've always like, just never wanted to do that as a job and just couldn't. And it's funny because now I do actually do selling on the internet as, as part of my job, but hopefully in a, in a much less pushy fashion. Um, so I, you know, I just like from the beginning was like, well, I'm going to be vegetarian, but I'm going to be the cool, the, the coolest vegetarian there is. I'm going to be the complete opposite of what people expect. Uh, I'm going to be open about all this stuff. I've changed a little bit in the amount of amount I'm willing to bend. But at the beginning I was like, I'm even going to like bend. Like if someone makes me chicken accidentally and I'm vegetarian, I'm going to eat it because I'm not going to be someone who's turning down food. Um, you know, I just, I just wanted to be the opposite of what people, what I associated with vegetarians and vegans. And I was that. And like I said, I have changed in some of those ways. Like I, as I, as the cause has, has become more meaningful to me, um, I've realized that there are situations where I, I don't think it, the best thing for the cause is to bend. Um, in some tiny situations, I do think maybe it is. But anyway, I, I just came to really enjoy that people were, were finding my site and sticking around, not just because of the information or because of, you know, the recipes were good or because the training information was valuable, but they said they, a lot of people were sticking because they liked the way that I, that I promoted it, the way that I talked about this, they were used to preachy vegans and vegetarians, and they really found it interesting because, because, you know, being, if they were not a vegetarian yet, um, they were sticking around because they, they just liked the way that I was talking about it in this friendly, low pressure way. And, uh, I, I came to really like that. I like it was really important to me that, that that's how people saw me. So when people actually were, I was like, hey, this is this is a cool thing that people are actually noticing that I am trying to spread it in this way. So um, that's that's the way I've always done it. And you know, people could argue that that maybe I could reach more people by by pushing harder or get people to actually take a step rather than just like giving a bunch of tools and saying, well, when you're ready, here here's this stuff. Uh, but I, I don't know. I just really like it. I think it's uh, it's the only way that I could comfortably be someone who spreads a message like this. To even imagine myself spreading a message like this is weird. Like, and it's not even that intentional. I don't go out there trying to spread the message. Like, I'm I'm happy to go be an example, write about the stuff I'm doing, say that I happen to be doing it on a plant based diet. Um, but that's that that's the extent. I mean, that that's how I like to do it, and and it, it has worked really well. I'm, I'm really happy with it. Yeah, I am also always so interested in kind of how people who are vegan came to being vegan, especially because it's it's not how I was raised. So it was definitely an adult decision. So it's not like I don't remember making this choice, right? Like, oh, I was five years old and my parent, you know, whatever. That it, for me, kind of completely the opposite as, as your story. I came to it through like a very selfish, not selfish in a bad way necessarily, just like selfish athletic perspective. Like I was in rapid succession um, exposed to Brendan Brazier and Rich Roll, like right after the other. And this whole idea of you can perform better, better athletically on a plant-based diet. Like that was very intriguing for me because that's when I was the most interested in like, how do I be better and faster? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, and I like what you said about the ex- kind of experiments. Well, I'm going to do this for 10 days. I'm going to do this for 30 days. And I know that that's kind of a part of your approach in general, but that was, you know, for me, I said, Hey, let me experiment. What if I, you know, ate a plant-based diet for the 16 weeks of training for my first marathon? Like that seems like it was a long time, but it was doable because there was like a very clear end date. Like I have a hard time trying to make changes when it feels like that's going to be forever, you know? Yeah. Um, 
and it was, for me, it was more just like, wow, I started like physically, I just felt a lot better. Like it ticked all the selfish boxes. Like I felt better. I was sleeping better. My skin was better. You know, I was running great. I was like, okay, like, so this is something I'm going to keep doing. And it wasn't, I think once I had then made that change, I was a lot more open to the ethical side of things. Like I had always, I think like you, like very turned off by the kind of pushy approach, just this idea that I don't think that, I don't think shame leads to change. Right. You know, like making people feel terrible about what's happening to animals, this kind of stuff, or making them feel guilty or hard. Like that just makes people defensive. I don't think that that leads to change. But once I had already kind of made this decision on my own, I was a lot more open to, okay, well, let me actually look into some of this stuff that for any number of reasons, like I didn't want to face before. Like it was, I couldn't face watching some of those documentaries, right? Or some of those things. And for whatever reason, I guess the timing was just right. Or I was in a place where that message of truth, like really spoke to me. And uh, then it became like, it's gone full circle now that it, I feel like it's 100% an ethical thing. Like that other stuff is just bonus, but it's it's just kind of interesting, like how, how the experience or the evolution is for different people. Yeah. And so many people come to it with exactly your story that, that something about the the, I don't know if it's if it's the fact that you made the decision on your own, uh, not after being pushed into it, or if it's that. And some people will say that that when you eat this way, and just you know by virtue of eating this way for an extended amount of time, you actually become more compassionate. Um, just be just by you you know that that whole commitment and consistency thing, right? Like you become somebody who doesn't eat animals, so that then uh, in this sort of weird backwards way starts to make you care more for animals. Um, so yeah, I've seen so many people have, have come to it like that from the health angle first, and then it turns into an ethical thing for them, uh, which is wonderful because I think that's that's probably how most people will change, right? Because most people are interested in in like you said something something selfish, something for themselves, uh, and and you know I don't care how people get there. I think it's it's wonderful that anyone does, um, but for whatever reason it, I happen to to be the opposite, and and so many people think that I must have come to it for health, but uh, I actually didn't. It was it was yeah. ethical. Well, I mean, and you mentioned the dog too. Like I, I never grew up having pets. You know, we traveled a lot, moved a lot. So, I mean, and I grew up in Manhattan and in big cities, like animals in general were just never a part of my life. And it wasn't until, you know, Paul and I got together and, you know, he had this cat and I like actively didn't like cats. It was a little allergic. I was like, Oh God, I'm gonna have to live with this cat. And then obviously predictably, like completely fell in love with this and became a crazy (laughs) cat person. And we got another cat. And I think it's only through what you just said about your dog that I think that that had more of a subconscious role than I thought, like that I just started asking myself some, some questions like, okay, well, I'm not going to kill my cat and eat it. So like, why is it different? You know, like just in which might sound like silly, but that, that affected me. And then, you know, the other thing, that kind of really hit for me personally was this idea of like, if if I was tasked with, you know, going out and hunting this animal and killing it and skinning it and doing this thing, like that's a horrifying process to me. And I know that there are people that don't feel that way and that's fine. But for me, it's so hard. And then I'm like, well, if I'm not willing to do that the same way of like, you know, what we were just saying about running, like, I don't want, you know, X goal enough to do the work to get there. Well, if I'm not willing to do this thing that I think is horrifying, then I shouldn't be allowed to like eat the aftermath. And this was just like my own personal, like, I don't know, right. but I was no, I think thinking about that. I think that's totally valid. And I, and I think a lot of people do, that is, that is another thing that a lot of people use to, to, you know, find, find the motivation or whatever to, to do this. They, they ask themselves that question and, and the answer for a lot of them is no. Uh, and there are a lot of people who, who like, like if someone told me that they were, they only 
they, they were vegetarian most of the time or vegan most of the time. They only ate animals that they killed themselves or that, that they themselves killed. Um, yeah, I, I would kind of applaud that. I'd be like, that. that's a pretty cool way. If you're going to eat meat, that's a, that's a pretty good uh, a good way to do it, I think. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that's come up through this process, like when I first started making these changes, I think I was more, I know that I was more soapboxy about them, I guess. And I think part of that came from like, I didn't have the conviction to just do it by myself quietly. Like I needed other people like, you have to watch this documentary. You have to validate the choices that I'm making, you know, that that kind of thing. And it's, that has thankfully gone away to the point of like, I really believe like we're each the CEO of our own body. Like you can eat or not eat whatever the fuck you want. Like it's a very personal choice. And so these are my choices. I do not need a single person to think that these are good choices or bad. Like I don't, I don't care. And I think the same thing's true. Like I, Sometimes I struggle with how to react. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, I could never be vegan. Or, you know, like that it's, it comes out as this like defensive thing. And I'm like, that's, I, I didn't ask you to be, you're fine. <laughs> you know I mean? Like that it's, right. I don't know. Like it's, if, if that's not what you want to do, you don't have to do that. I don't know. Yeah. No. And I think, and I think when you react that, I mean, probably what they're expecting is, is you to put up a fight or try to convince them that they actually could be vegan. And then, I mean, they probably could, but, uh, I tend to think this is one of those situations where I think you do do more for the movement by just kind of being quiet. And I'm not that I'm that, I'm, that I don't wish there were people out there who who would take a stand and, and you know put up a good debate. Uh, I, I like I like hearing that, and, and I think I think there are people who who that actually will help to change. But I think like if 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 you're of the person of the nature that it's just not your thing, you're like try to tell somebody what they should do. I think I think you serve the movement the movement really well. By just like being unexpectedly okay with whatever they're going to do, and you do what you're going to do, and I think people are like, "Hmm, that's kind of that's an interesting uh, that that's an interesting approach to to veganism or vegetarianism that I wasn't familiar with before that person just reacted like that." So I don't know. I, I think it's a good thing just to right. Just well, to it sounds like neither of us. It's not like we're not willing to talk about it. If someone wants to ask me about where I get my protein or you know whatever, sure. I mean, yeah, at some right. point, I'm a little sick of that question, but it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm happy to talk about it or talk about my experience. Like, it's funny, like when I'll have people that ask why, I mean, kind of my answer is just because eating animals makes me sad. Like, that's it. That's really it. Like all the other stuff I can talk about if someone wants to, but I don't know. I think, like I said, I think that shame doesn't lead to change. I also think, you know, to your point about different ways to serve the movement or people have different like personality archetypes. Like I, I'm not the advocate type, right? Like I, I know there's all those different, like I'm more of kind of like the artist healer type. And like, I'm, I'm glad that there are advocates in the world, not just for this, but for lots of other, like we need that. We need the people that are going to like stand up and say something and that's there, but it doesn't really come so naturally for me like that. I don't think that's my path. And it sounds right. like it's not yeah. yours either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel exactly the same way. I love it. Oh my God. We just covered so much good stuff. So the way that I like to, to wrap these up are with what we call community questions. So they're questions that real talk radio listeners have put forth and asked to hear about from each guest. So we pick a selection of questions for each season. And there are nine of these questions for this season, season four. So kind of rapid fiery, random assortment of questions. All right. All right. So the first question is about self-care or self-kindness, however you want to phrase it, which are buzzwords that get thrown around a lot. And I'd love for you to share maybe one or two ways or what it looks like for you in your actual kind of real life. If you're like practicing self-care, taking good care of yourself, what are you usually doing? Uh, Okay. So so I have two kids, as I mentioned. Um, 
when I am in need of self-care, it, it usually means that they are driving me crazy. Uh, <laughs> as, as much as I love them, uh, I just, you know, I just need my own space. So, uh, for me, self-care is, is getting away into my own space. Even if that's just like going into my bedroom and shutting the door and reading a book or putting on headphones and like just shutting out the rest of the world. Um, or now and then I will go on little trips. I, I mentioned at the very beginning of this that I don't really like leaving home. I mean, I, we have such a good time here with the kids that I don't really like it much. But now and then um, I will go off entirely by myself uh, to like a little, you know, beach town or something and get a hotel and stay there for three or four days and just be totally by myself and not do anything really. I mean, nothing nothing that most people would consider valuable. Like I don't like exercise much or or do any extensive journaling, but just go away and just like be with my own thoughts. And, and I think, you know, I, I can, I guess I can justify that as kind of a business thing that I need it for, for creativity. Um, but or you don't have to justify it because taking yeah. care of yourself is important, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, that's true. But, uh, you know, when you've got, when you, when you're leaving three kids or two kids and a white pine, I feel like I need to justify it somehow. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, who would you say are two or three of your favorite people to follow on social media? Um, I, I almost do no social media these days and I, and I'm very proud of that. I used to, uh, I used to not do a whole lot of interacting or, or sorry, I used to, I used to do lots of, uh, publishing on social media, but very little following. And I've, I've even recently gotten rid of the publishing and realized that like nothing really suffers when you stop. Uh, so I, I don't have too many. I like, I like following, uh, Tim Ferriss on social media. He's, he's just kind of an interesting polarizing guy. There are a lot of things that I don't really like about, uh, the way he does things, but I, I do learn a tremendous amount from him and get, get new ideas. So I like following him. Um, Tony Robbins, another guy who I am a big fan of, uh, just, I just like his stuff. It's just like having his presence in my life, whether it's reading his tweet or, you know, reading his books, which I, I tend to keep going back to, uh, it's a good thing for me. It, it, it a lot of times is, is one of those things that will kind of be the spark where I'll, I'll see something from him and then I'll be like, you know what? I'm going to read his whole book in the next week. And then I do that. And then I'm like super pulled back into goal mode. And sometimes that's the thing that, that gets me going again. So, um, I'd say he's my other one. I love that. Yeah. I feel similarly about Tim Ferriss. I did. Do you listen to his podcast? I used to a lot and I, I recently stopped for, for kind of the reasons I mentioned, I, I get some really good ideas. I love his guests. Uh, I don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> he did this. The reason I'm asking is he did, recently did an episode with um Sean White, the snowboarder, which oh, really? is like okay. the funniest, best. Like it's my favorite episode of his podcast. It was so funny. So, okay. Anyway, was... yeah, it was good. Um. Okay. So the next question: When you think back over your life so far, what's one thing that stands out that you feel proud of? Uh, I think I'm. I'm. I mean, we've talked about all the all the accomplishment type things, but really, what I'm most proud of is is that I've. Uh, created this this job and and path for myself where I'm not just like a cog in the machine. I don't just punch in at nine and leave at five uh, and feel like I just did nothing but made made somebody else a bunch of money for the day. Uh, I'm you know I, I'm very very proud of having started something that has has impacted a lot of people and that that I can get up on Monday morning and be like super excited that it's Monday morning. Uh, you know I just I kind of watched my dad did the opposite of that his his whole life. And like, I mean, I, I'm tremendously grateful for the fact that he supported us and, and did something he didn't like for, for everybody else's sake. Um, 
But I remember telling myself, I am not going to do that when I grow up. And, I, and I'm very proud of, of having followed through on that. Mm, I love that. What's one thing in your life that you'd say is no longer serving you that maybe it's time to let go of? Uh, you know what? This is funny. I'm talking to you about this, but alcohol. Um, because you were one of the first people who, who, again, it was one of those things where like, I just thought people can't just stop drinking. Like you can't actually do <laughs> yes, that. Yes, they can. <laughs> right. Uh, but then I heard that you did. And we talked about this on, on my podcast and, and I think in person a lot too. Um, and that, that kind of like, I think planted the seed in me and then just got me thinking about it. Still, I was at the point where like, I just can't actually do that. Uh, just so much of my life revolves around it. But I actually just recently um, went like four weeks without without any alcohol. I was doing this this thing called One Year No Beer Challenge, um, and they had like month long things or uh, you know ninety day thing. You just you can just commit to whatever you want, and and I did it. And I was like, I did it because I was just sick of drinking, and I wasn't ever getting drunk. I mean, or almost never. Um, but like one beer a night, I'd have one good strong craft beer a night, and I loved it. And I, and I still kind of have some love for that. But I realized that it was. Like that was what I did for the night. After work was done, I would have that beer at who knows a little after dinner, maybe seven o'clock, and and that was it. Because because of what it did to me, the way that it made me lazy and tired, and just not having enough energy or like um, I don't know mental kind of presence to do anything like what I normally would consider valuable. Uh, it was it. I would just do that, and then I would go to bed. So I, I just got really sick of that, and I was like, I'm gonna. I'm just going to stop that. <laughs> so uh, I did. I'm not saying that I'm never going to drink again because I, I think I haven't really gotten rid of the desire to to have a drink now and then. But um, as far as like a daily habit, I have I have eliminated that, and I'm very happy about it. Yeah, I'm going to resist the urge too. The other thing we didn't really talk about was kind of all your little. I'm going to do this for 30 days. I'm going to do it like all the experiment <laughs> things and habit changes and stuff that I would love to dig into. But I know we don't have time, so I'm going to just like muzzle myself right now because I we could go into this. Um, which two or three books would you say have had the biggest impact on you, or that you return to the most? I know you mentioned Tony Robbins, but uh, yeah. So I will mention one of his. I mean, I know I know a lot of people do consider like his stuff corny or. Uh, just over the top. And, and I, I get that for some people it's not theirs, but uh, he has a book called Awaken the Giant Within that I actually i am almost at the end of right now. It's only the second time I've read it from start to finish. But uh, that that's something that I read right in the days before I started No Meat Athlete. And I really think I was in a great state of mind when I did make that decision. So uh, I love that book for that reason. Um, let's see. My other good ones. Man, I have a lot of favorites. Um there's a book called Fooled by Randomness that I really love named by a guy named Nassim Nicholas Taleb or Taleb. I'm reading Anti-Fragile right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I have that one. I have not read it yet, but um, I've been meaning to. I read The Black Swan and, and that other one. And I, that Fooled by Randomness book, I don't know. I just loved it. That's that's the first book I read when I was miserable in a in a working corporate job. And I read that and I was like, man, I want to do something really cool. Like, I don't know. And, and I ended up going back to grad school for math because that book – inspired me to to do so um which in a roundabout way led to what i'm doing now so i'm not going to say that it that it uh impacted my life as far as career goes really but um you know just i just love the ideas in that book uh and my my last one i don't know what good this will be to anyone it's called uh godel escher bach by douglas hofstater and it's sort of mathy sort of computer sciencey it's a really big book but uh one I think I won a Pulitzer Prize, and actually, it's it is in a very very indirect way. 
is a is a big metaphor for consciousness, and he kind of puts forth the idea of of this model of what consciousness is. And believe it or not, I was reading his stuff when I when I did first have this this ethical urge to to go vegetarian when that cropped up. So as I said, I was doing a lot of thinking and reading about consciousness and things like that. And uh, this is one of the books. Although, I mean, don't read that book because you're interested in finding inspiration to go vegetarian. Like, there's nothing in there directly about that. Yeah. That's um, just how it landed for you. Yeah. yeah, it just got me thinking about consciousness. And then once I started thinking about that, that, that kind of led me to thinking about how do animals compare to humans and, you know, just went down that road. Yeah, well, I mean, I think with any book or research or things, like, people take what they take from it, right? Like, it, you never know, like, how it's going to impact someone. Yep. What would you say is your guilty pleasure? Uh, man, up until a month ago, it would have been uh, like a nice IPA in the af- in the evening, uh, not the afternoon. That'd be a really guilty pleasure. Um, but in <laughs> the evening, after- <laughs> yeah. this is why I don't drink anymore, Matt. <laughs> um, oh man, I hate to keep giving the same answers. Like Tony Robbins is another sort of guilty pleasure of mine. Like I I get that some of his stuff is super corny and people think it's just gross, but uh, I just eat some of that stuff out. So okay, personal development stuff is kind of a is kind of a guilty pleasure for me like yeah. i i just like to i i buy tony robbins stuff off of ebay like buy cassette tapes and i and then i whatever the word is dub them or something onto mp3s through this fancy setup and for my book tour i like went with a boom box in my car because my you know people, the cars don't have tape players anymore <laughs> and i bought all these old like zig ziglar tapes from the from the probably your late 70s or something and just played those uh, so I don't, there's something about that. Like, even when I'm like far past the point of thinking this stuff is actually helping me with my life, I just kind of get entertainment out of listening to these guys. And they are mostly guys for whatever reason, uh, at least from this era. Um, I, I just kind of like listening to them talk and tell stories. So funny. I love it. Um, what's your favorite thing to give to other people as a gift? Um, man, that's a good one. There's something on the tip of my tongue. Like I always like to buy, like go off the registry. So when somebody's wedding, like we almost never buy, we never cooperate and like just get what we're supposed rebellion, to gift giving rebellion. <laughs> right. Um, I I really like to give books. It's it's a hard thing to do because I know I know when you give a book, you're also like giving this obligation of somebody to spend ten hours of their life reading something when nobody likes to read anymore. Uh, I like to read. But, me, I do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've given I've given Seth Godin's linchpin to a lot of people. That's that's one that I give like on graduations and different things like that. Uh, I just think it's a I think it's a great one. Yeah, I love giving books too. I mean, I'm the person who like not even necessarily for an occasion, but if I read a book that like really hits me, I'm like online mailing it to people. Like, okay, this person needs a copy. <laughs> this person needs a copy. And these books just like show up, and they're like, oh, I guess Nicole wants me to read this thing. So, yeah. Um, so two more questions. Um, what's Either a habit that you're that you would love to break or a habit that you would love to build. Um, I would really like to build a meditation practice. Me too. <laughs> and for a long time, I thought that the way for me to do that was to also build a getting up early practice. Uh, and I and I did succeed at that for a long time. And I did this. You probably heard of morning pages, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I did that for a long time, and that to me was served some of the the roles that meditation does. It was meditative in many ways. Um, but I, I finally got to the point with that where I was like, I don't think this is really doing anything for me anymore. It's just, it's just now taking up in half, half an hour each morning, uh, and a lot of ink and a lot of paper. Uh, 
So I, I, meditation is definitely one that I, I, just, I think I read Sam Harris's book recently, Waking Up, and that uh, that sort of doubled my my motivation level to to do this. Just seeing what what other benefits are. I mean, there are so many benefits. We just get sick of hearing about them, but um, just sort of for the for the self exploration, the sort of the the exploration of of different states of consciousness that that can be reached either by meditation or by like hallucinogenic drugs. And I'm not not likely going to go be doing the drugs pretty soon. So. Um, yeah, I, I, and I've never consistently made that work. I've tried yeah, a lot of times. Same. Uh, I know I've never gotten past like twenty days, and I don't. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because I have an expectation that the experience of it or what it's going to bring to my life is different than the reality of it, and I haven't been willing to like let go of that fantasy yeah. yet. Or like it's like right. with running. Like even when it's shit, I feel better after. And I, I guess I just <laughs> haven't really gotten to that place with meditation yet, where it's still. I've never gotten past the place where it feels like a chore. Yeah, right. and I have a really like talk about like my little inner rebel is like, don't make me do something that I don't want to do. Like I just have this, I don't know. So anyway, yeah. Um, when you look ahead at the next few months and I know you mentioned the new book, which I'm super excited about because I loved your first book, but when you look ahead at the next few months, what's something that you feel really excited about? Uh, I am really excited about this whole concept and idea of growth hacking. Have you heard of that? No, but it clearly sounds like something I want to be a part of. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 not really hacking. I'm I'm so sick of the, oh the, my God, the hacking it. culture. Yep, me um, too. Yeah, so it it's not that. It's not just. It's just. It's not finding little tricks for growth. Um, it's just it's just this new role that I want to step into. And I mentioned that Doug's going to be taking over as editor of No Meat Athlete, and I'll still be doing some email com- content that that is me talking, you know, about me and my life, but. Mostly, I'm going to be becoming someone whose job it is to grow the company and and to find new ways of growing. Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit different from marketing in that in that so much is based on metrics and and you know measuring everything. Um, and and for me, like I mentioned, that I I was doing math in grad school, and that's when I actually started No Meat Athlete and ended up quitting. I I stopped working on my PhD. I was working on that. I got my master's. Uh, Thought I was going to finish and get a PhD in, in applied math, and I and this this no meat athlete thing came along and just sort of hijacked it, and then hijacked my brain really. And I couldn't even I couldn't even consider that I would finish math once no meat athlete came along because I was like, this is my opportunity to to create something that matters. So I did it, but uh, there's there's a side of me that really really misses the analytical stuff and the numbers and growth hacking is is sort of is marketing, but but with that. Uh, with with the internet, with all the new things we can measure, um, you know, so running Facebook ads and and f- just creating lots of things to hopefully uh, like really stepping back and not just being in no meat athlete writing blog posts and doing stuff, but but you know to use a sort of tired phrase, but working on the business rather than in the business uh, and, and really trying to to grow it. And and I, I mean certainly from a selfish point of view that that serves right i mean if the business grows it makes more money which is wonderful my family can live more comfortably and i get to feel great about it but um i'm also just really excited because i haven't seen those sorts of tools used to grow a movement like like the vegan movement i mean they're used by companies a lot but uh i get really excited thinking about like what what can happen if we get intelligent about about spreading a message like that um Rather than just you know all the stuff we've talked about, the leaflets and all that stuff, and, and and independent businesses that will sprout up and promote this message. But what if somebody got really good at at spreading a movement? Um, 
So I don't know. I'm just really excited about what where that could go. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll be excited to kind of circle back with you when you're a little bit more in that more kind of like less tactics, more strategy, that type of stuff or what you wind yeah. up implementing. Um, so you mentioned you're not super, super into social media, but what's the best place for people to kind of find you and connect online? Um, the, the place where I'm most likely to actually be there reading is still Twitter. And I, every now and then we'll log on and do that. Mostly Twitter now is just automated, um, with a tool that kind of puts up best of no athlete blog posts and stuff. Um, so no athlete.com is the blog. Um, podcast is called no athlete radio, uh, Facebook and Twitter. I'm, uh, well, I, I'm on Twitter as no athlete. The business is on Twitter is on Facebook also as no athlete. Uh, and we're on Instagram too. No athlete underscore underscore official. But uh, like I said, I'm not really the one behind most of those things. Yeah, it's all the people out there. I always laugh when I am like at races or something and I see people wearing the Nomi Athlete shirts. I'm like, oh, yes, that's, I know. <laughs> so, excited. I love it. So I'll put links to all of that, um, especially the podcast too. Other things that we didn't just get to talk about, right? Um, but thank you so much, especially for just kind of the honest, thoughtful story sharing and kind of being in this, hey, we have no wisdom, like place with me. So thank you. <laughs> right. 